Welcome back to Surcast, your monthly podcast hookup for the latest and greatest in evidence-based practice and physical therapy. We're glad to have you back. I got the usual suspects with me this month. I got Tyler, Meredith, Casey, and Riley Mon, if you were wondering, <laughs> all here with me to talk about a pretty cool, or at least a very interesting subject matter. Uh, we're going to be talking about whiplash-associated disorders, especially as it relates to neck and thoracic pain. So certainly, obviously, kind of a scary diagnosis for a lot of us. A lot of times, you know, these patients are not just neck pain patients. They come in, if anyone's treated any amount of them with a variety variety of impairments and also a lot of uh, psychological factors, social construct problems. So there's a lot that's going on with this patient population. Uh, you know, a couple of things that we really wanted to hit on before we really got started. The, the first thing is just what whiplash associated disorders are. And we, we always want to remind everyone that a whiplash is, is not a diagnosis. It's a mechanism of injury. Uh, we can thank Riley for that one. She, she, she coined that one pretty well. Certainly, it's extremely important to remember. If they have whiplash, they could present with any variety of impairments any variety of diagnoses, anywhere from upper cervical ligament instability to just chronic neck pain, um, and pretty much everything in between. So I think that's a really important uh, thing to remember, that the, the patient population is varied, uh, has a lot of uh, different aspects to it. And we need to be able to screen those aspects, uh, and there are a lot of screens that we have available to us, but I think sometimes the therapist is a little bit of a, a loss as to what you should be looking for in this population. So I was hoping to open it up to the table uh, of, of all of our experts here, who feels like they have a great screen, like something that can really look for all the different parts of a, of a whiplash patient? So I think I can probably answer your question. You think Matt. you can? Okay. Can. All right. Casey's got this. All right. <laughs> um, so the first thing I want to know is more about what um, happened during the MBA. So um, getting specifics more along the lines of the event chronology. So I want to know if they are the driver, the passenger, um, what kind of car or truck were they in? Were they driving? Were they stopped? What about the person that hit them? Were they in a car, truck? Were they um, driving? So just more about what exactly happened during the accident. You can also tell a lot about how people feel about their their MBA um, based on how they react during their story. So definitely something to pay attention to in terms of their attitude. Are they crying? Do they feel fine about it? Um, may give you a little bit of insight into how they are coping with this particular accident. Then you want to ask about what happened after. Did they immediately go to the emergency room? Were they? Did they go home and then go to the doctor later? Um, and then all of the questions that follow after that. Did you receive imaging? What did they tell you initially? And what have you been doing since the accident? Um, in terms of uh, specifics, like outside of their your normal um, screen, like you know your pain rating and where it's located, um, asking for things that maybe you may not think about that are going to be uh, maybe more specific to your MBA individual, um, such as dizziness, uh, visual and auditory disturbances, do they have jaw pain, trouble swallowing, um, cognitive difficulties such as difficulty concentrating or memory loss? Um, how are they sleeping at night? Um, and maybe asking them more about um, any depressive, depression symptoms that they may have. Some other things to look at are, you know, do they show signs of post-traumatic stress like I mentioned earlier? Any mention of hypersensitivity, which will kind of, or hyperarousal that we'll dive into later. So looking at, you know, are they sensitive to air conditioning? Uh, specifically cold, I think, is our big factor there. 
um, how are they moving their neck, how are they holding themselves um, during the subjective portion of the evaluation? Uh, I was just going to mention, so um, I did a lot of my schooling with Jim Elliott, um, so if you've looked Ooh. into... Name drop. Name yeah, drop. Name Hashtag Jim Elliott. Mike Nelson. If you'll retweet us, Jim, thank you. <laughs> Shout out to Jim. Um, it, he did a lot of the research on uh, whiplash-associated disorders, and one thing he kind of touched on in school was there's not really, if you ask them about their hypersensitivity, sometimes they don't really know or understand or really realize that it's a problem. So a lot of it can come down to observation. You know, if you crank up the air conditioner, are they really reacting to the cold? Or if, you know, you can kind of base it on if it's a hot summer day and they're coming in shivering. Um, and then a lot of things you can do is just testing their sensitivity to touch. I mean, if you just barely touch them and they jump off the table, then there's some other kind of things going on. So sometimes if you ask them, they're not really going to know. But if you can just kind of use your observation and do some devious acts to kind of check out and see how they react to things, you can get some more information that way. Okay, how, but how would you... So I love that. That's kind of how you can maybe assess the hyperarousal states. Um, but how would you assess things like the fear that you talked about or, or the PTSD? What are some things that a clinician could use for that? So um, maybe having them fill out the impact of event scale um, with their initial paperwork. Uh, this is something I've actually used uh, once prior, and it was very helpful in at least broaching the subject of how they were coping with their accident. Um, so the impact of event scale covers many um, psychological variables, looking at different stressors, such as how are you sleeping at night, do you... Um, specific things trigger memories of the accidents, you know, or you able to be in a car, things like that. And so that that's a very good tool, especially when you're looking at how to objectify it for maybe justification of further therapy or looking at, you know, does this person need further psychological evaluation that's beyond my scope of practice? Um, and then in terms of fear avoidance, you know, the two item FABQ is something really quick. Uh, to use, are you afraid that physical therapy will cause you pain, or physical activity will cause you pain, um, and are you afraid that moving your uh, neck will be harmful to you? Yeah, one one question that I really like to ask um, to patients that have been in a motor vehicle accident, um, without being so direct as, are you having psychological distress, is I ask them very casually, like, so are you nervous when you're driving now? Sure. Every single person will admit to that. And they don't know that they're admitting to some, some post-traumatic stress, but that's really what it is. They'll say, oh, yeah, I'm clenching my steering wheel. I'm looking in my rearview mirror all the time. And I feel like that's a really easy way to get some of that information. Well, I think this is really good information to be uh, gleaning and gaining. We're going to talk more about examination in a second, and we're going to talk about how all this gets put together. But, you know, your subjective history, you're, you're just gathering information. And the more information you have at your disposal, the better. And I, I, you know, if, if we're aware that these things exist in this population, I think it's important. Riley, I think it's an awesome way of kind of bridging that because it's not so overt as, you know, please fill out. Uh, the IES is awesome, uh, but maybe like before you give them that, you ask them a question like Riley's and if they say yes, then be like, all right, and here's this questionnaire I would like you to yeah. fill out now. Well, um, I'll, I'll follow it up with, you know, that's really common after an accident, you know, that will probably get better in time if it doesn't, you know there's people that are specialized to help you with that sort of thing. Casey, have you ever used the, so you said you used the IES before, right? Mm -hmm. um, did you use it to justify further services or what was the reason you used it? Um, I used it because I felt like the patient in question needed psychological counseling 
that was beyond my scope or beyond what I could help them with, and it was not, like you said, resolving the time. So obviously it's awesome to gather a lot of the subjective information, and at some point we're going to have to examine the patient, and, and I feel like this can be a very challenging thing sometimes, and sometimes it's just really hard to know where to start. I know I had that experience a lot coming right out of school, you know, how do I triage my examination, what are the most important things to look at first, uh, what are the things that I have to look at, like what are the things that are just absolutely imperative that we look at. Um, does anyone have something that they really like to use, like a, maybe an order in their examination that works really well? I mean, I can get into examination a little bit, mostly because I was kind of tasked with it. What? Um, no, come on. This is supposed to be a natural flow. <laughs> but to kind of echo what everybody's kind of said, subjective is where is where it's at. I think that's where a lot of differences in therapists lie. I think the really good therapists, they deliver and ask questions and create a very good subjective. We know that it guides our objective, um, but especially in this scarier population, um, it really is going to guide it, and, and it may even be where we stop, depending on how many red or yellow flags we're picking up um, during this is one during this objective, especially with this population. You know, having the sin, severity, irritability, all that stuff in mind before you get to objective, um, because as we'll get into the objective tests for to rule out some of the scarier stuff, really aren't very good. Um, we have them, and I'll talk about them briefly, but a lot of it I would spend more time on your subjective with kind of everything that's been mentioned. Um, Again, scarier thing that walks into our clinic. So after subjective, assuming that I'm still, or after subjective, assuming I'm still good to go into objective, I want to look at things. I'm definitely doing a neuro exam, you know, dermatome, myotome, reflexes, maybe Hoffman, Babinski, roll out some upper motor neuron stuff. And, and then I, I want to get into some of like VBI and ligamentous instability scenarios, especially with whiplash. Um, these people may be coming in perhaps without a without an image, um, and even with an image, it may not be the right image, or maybe a false positive or negative, those kind of things, um, especially if it's not a major accident, if we're still talking more of the whiplash with a car accident, they could come in, they might not have neck pain for a few days after the accident, so they didn't go see anybody for it. So Tyler, you just mentioned the idea of uh, the x-rays and the kind of scans that people need to have, um, and a lot of times, especially in a direct access situation, a lot of our CERT clinics are in um, direct access, all of our benchmark ones are, um, you know, what is a, what is or what are tools that we might use to make sure that someone is appropriate uh, to have an x-ray done, have radiographs done, or, or how do we rule that in and out? I mean, it's it's kind of the thing we, we probably all got, you know, day one of cervical and musculoskeletal in school is the Canadian C-spine rules. Um, there's literature out there supporting it, validating it, um, and it's probably easier. I think we'll probably post that up on our Twitter feed um, and throw it up on whatever else social media as needed because um, there's a nice algorithm that really follows through it. And it's something you should probably have either on your clinic, on your desktop, underneath your computer, somewhere that you can probably get to it to just kind of check mark and go through. I think it's really uh, – and it's not something – I think we talked, we had a joke about this earlier. I don't think it's something that you have to have memorized. Uh, but certainly if a person walks in with a whiplash injury and you have any concerns at all that they have not had the appropriate imaging done, this is something that you should probably run through. Would we all probably agree about that? I mean, at least trying to make sure we're screening them appropriately. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the ligamentous instability thing that I touched on. Two main ligaments that we're really talking about on both sides, the transverse ligament and the testing. Again, not great, but it can be pretty sensitive and ruling out. It's tested usually with sharp purser, and which sharp purser is pretty sensitive, but it's more of a symptom reliever. A couple other populations that we may want to also screen for upper ligamentous instability is rheumatoid arthritis 
and Down syndrome are two that are predisposed to get this. We also may want to think about, you know, congenital causes. The other main thing in the objective that I would look to rule out is that VBI. There's no great test for it, so I don't know if you guys have some specific things you do. I'll usually start straight plane, you know, screen extension, rotation, side bending, and then put them together in an active quadrant and have them just look over their shoulder at me. Um, I don't know if you guys have better ways of doing that. The research just isn't good because the test position can almost be provocative. Um, so that one I have a tough time with as well, but I think it's one of those things that we just need to keep in our mind, and especially when things aren't adding up. Knowing that the quadrant position is sometimes provocative anyways, is that one that you will overpressure? If they have pain, no. If they have no pain, then I will. Is that what you guys do? Yeah, yeah. I'm with you on that. Because that's not a comfortable position. Yeah, no, right. yeah. Here, you're painful here. Let me press down even harder. Well, I think it's a good point with like cervical, well, honestly, almost anything anyway. And I know we've had this discussion a lot in the past amongst us that like, if something is painful, you elicit elicit the primary pain that you were looking for. Right? You usually are, there's no need to push further into that. But if you're unable to elicit any symptoms and you want to clear the joint, then I think that it probably requires that you at least do some amount of overpressure. Yeah, kind of like I know we've talked about this before with the sins model. So you have to kind of weigh uh, the benefits and the risks of if their soups are if they're sensitive. You don't want to provoke their symptoms, but what if you're really trying to find out whether it's radiculopathy versus just a specific mm -hmm. joint dysfunction, you don't know unless you overpress it. It's true. It's true. And that really helps you when you're trying to rule like two things in and out, especially if it's neural tension versus radiculopathy if those are your competing hypotheses. Um, obviously a little bit off the trail from what yeah. Tyler said there. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, buddy. We just like hijacked your train. Actually, no, I'm good. Yeah, yeah, you're good. You're good. Yeah. Actually, well, hey, what do you... Okay, go ahead. I'm going to hijack your train again. Okay. Um, which is the, the train's been hijacked several times. You look like a bad Denzel movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep hijacking your train. Uh, I was just going to mention that um, because whiplash disorders, they can show up as basically anything in your clinic. There's a couple other really kind of random things that I will also check out at least. Um, balance impairments are pretty common in this population, and it's not something they usually will say because usually their neck hurts more than their balance is bothering them. So I usually do a quick screen of that. I mean, your tenetti is pretty simple and easy to do. Um, or uh, proprioceptive loss in the neck can also be something they don't realize is, a big of a problem, is as big of a problem as it is. So it's something I'll kind of look at, um, even with just a quick laser on the head and kind of seeing if they can hit the same spot on the wall every time they move their neck. Um, so just kind of those things that, yeah, you have to screen out the red and yellow flag because that's really important. But... If you screen those out, what are you going to do with them? What are their real impairments since it's such a wide variety of things that could show up? Well, and you don't have to do that the first day, too. No. I mean, that's like, like, yeah, like screen out the red flag stuff that Tyler is talking about, you know, day one, and then maybe you can come back to some of the proprioceptive imbalance stuff. Mm -hmm. I know, there's, isn't there, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to recall from our residency days, there's a fairly large correlation between vestibular issues and traumatic injuries as well. Mm -hmm. You know, there again, that's probably something that's not. Uh, tier one red flag screen that I have to get done day one, but yeah, should we be doing some kind of vestibular exam at some point if they still report dizziness? Probably. Uh, you know, I've talked to Dr. Lindsay Myers in our clinic. A uh, little shout out there, Lindsay. I don't know if you're listening or not, uh, but I know she's talked about a lot of her MVA patients. She will. She standardizes vestibular screening on all of them, regardless. Now that said, she's you know she's kind of a specialist in that field, but uh, there is a fairly high correlation, and we need to be looking. I mean, that that's more that second tier stuff. And I think to Meredith's point, 
you know, don't feel like you have to jam this all into the first day. You know, this is something that you can come back day two, day three, and be looking at. So we're already a few minutes into this guy, and there's some awesome information. So we're going to go ahead and pause here. I know everyone is chomping at the bit to get to the next part of this episode, but we're going to go ahead and pause here. We're going to come back next week. We're going to finish this podcast. We're going to talk a little bit more about prognosis and about treatment. Thank you so much for listening to Surfcast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.